Good morning. This morning I'll be reading from Psalm 27, starting in verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. And down in 13, he says, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Good morning, everybody. So we are continuing our series in the Psalms. It's kind of a summer in the Psalms. I believe we've got three more messages after this. And uh, I invite you to take your copy of the scriptures or your device and turn to Psalm 27. So we've looked at a variety of types of Psalms of uh, lament and wisdom and um, all kinds of different ones. But today we're going to be looking at something called a Psalm of Confidence. Some of you uh, may be familiar with an app um, called Nextdoor, and it's supposed to connect neighborhoods. And uh, I used to follow it. I I, I don't really do it anymore just because people get really, really worked up about stuff, and I just kind of got tired of reading it. But but I remember one unusually uh, interesting thread, and it was about street racing. All right? Now... Um, I had heard these these sounds when we first moved. Uh, they'd they'd crank up at night, and you would just hear them just going to town like pretty much every night. And I, I didn't really know that it was it was a thing. But um, on this thread, there were people who were really really bothered about this, and then there were people who were pretty. Uh, they they were laughing at the people who were bothered about it, and were kind of trolling them just a little bit. And uh, and this really is a thing: street racing. Um, now, if, if that's you, if that's you, I, I want to talk to you afterwards, not to fuss at you, but I just want to know the psychology of this thing. Um, I, I actually did have um, somebody from the first service come up and say, like, you haven't ever gotten the, the experience of street racing and, and felt sorry for me. Okay, so um, I got a little bit of insight into it, but apparently how this works is uh, these, these, these folks will stay ahead of the police by uh, assigning a meeting place. And from there, they will go out and, and do, some, do some racing. Let's just say that uh, the meeting place was, I don't know, the Valero on Old Baltimore Pike. That's kind of near where I live. And, and so they're meeting, and they're getting ready to go to wherever they're going to race. And um, this guy drives up in a, a 2001 um, Ford Taurus, right? Paint peeling, um, the design of this, tr- this car has been, been hated on for years. Um, now, what this guy has done, he has dropped in a different engine, okay? Maybe from like a, a, a Shelby, you know, Mustang or something. So 760 horsepower, V8, you know, supercharged the whole deal. He's dropped it into this Taurus. And, uh, and he begins tagging along with the street racers. And uh, they're a little suspicious at first, but he's like, hey, I just did this when I was a kid. I'd love to watch. And, and eventually, he, he, he pulls up alongside a hopped-up little Subaru, you know, with a spoiler or whatever it is, a WRX, and, and, and revs his engine and reaches over and smiles at him. And, 
Now, I don't know that scenario, what would happen. I have no idea, frankly. Um, if you have opinions, tell me afterwards. But where would this guy's confidence come from? Like, well, it would come from what was under the hood, something that was not readily apparent. And so confidence, the source of it, is not always visible. And today's psalm, we see David's confidence. Uh, this is a psalm for a coronation in which the king would, in front of a, you know, a million people, declare his confidence in God. The question in verse 1, whom shall I fear? Of whom shall I be afraid? You know, if God is light, in other words, whatever your darkness is, when God comes to play, he dispels it. And he's salvation. Whatever situation you find yourself in, when God comes into the room, he saves you from it. If God is light and salvation, and that's true, then whom should you fear? Now, expects the answer, no one. But of course, we kind of slip up our hands and say, I'm I'm teacher, I I can think of a few things. Um, I fear the hand carrying the proverbial proverbial pink slip, right? The, The... I've got this addiction to food and shelter, and this pink slip scares me, right? Uh, You may fear um, the intruder that breaks in at night, and you live alone, and you hear every single sound. If you live in one of the other nations right now, you may fear a drone strike, or you may know of people who fear, as they're in a state-sanctioned uh, worship service, then a state-sanctioned worship service, somebody's in the back just watching, and you fear. So it, it's not hard to think of things that we fear, and for good reason. But lest you think this is just a bit of armchair quarterbacking or a bit of palace poetry, it takes account of a variety of really scary situations that a king might face. If you have a copy of uh, the scripture in front of you, verse 2, he speaks about evildoers like carnivores. Okay, so, so they're just like ready to tear into me, adversaries and foes. Verse 3, invading armies and war. Okay, verse 6, enemies all around me. Verse 10, is a threat of abandonment by family if my father and mother leave me. Verse 12, You've got adversaries with plans. It says, don't give me up to their will. In other words, it actually kind of points back to the carnivores. They've got an appetite, and they want to rip into me again. And, uh, and they're false witnesses accusing them of things that they've never done. In verse 13, he expresses hope about seeing God's goodness in the land of the living. Well, why would he say land of the living, unless there's a possibility that the next goodness he sees from God will be in the land of the dead. And so, so here we have some very, very real situations that we could possibly fear. But I want you to look at verse 3, the last phrase, yet I will be confident. So today I'd like to answer this question. David was convinced, absolutely confident that God was his light and his salvation, how did he become that confident? Or, if we wanted to go back to that illustration, what was the engine? You know, what were the, the powerful eight cylinders that are, are firing in there that gave David this kind of confidence that he would say, yeah, the answer to that is no one, because God's my light and salvation. 
So there are two different reasons that David would affirm his confidence in God, and this is them. God's house and God's favor. It's going to be looking at two, God's house and God's favor. The source of David's confidence, God's house. Look at verse 4. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Let's read that one more time. One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. I'm going to start here with a warning. There's probably, when I say God's house, something that pops into your mind. I want you to just kind of set it aside for the moment. You may picture an Old Testament temple. You may picture a place like Ogletown. You may picture some wood-paneled Sunday school room. I just want you to set it aside for the moment. And we're going to follow David as we kind of pursue what God's house is and why it was so important to his confidence. First, the states is obvious here in verse 4. God's house was David's number one priority. Uh, It turns out there's no other statement like this in the Bible. It is a unique and bold statement. Look at his language. One thing I have asked, one thing I will seek after. When I first read that, I wondered if it was a figure of speech. Is he just kind of exaggerating here? But um, no, this really is David's A, number one desire to be in God's house. And this is a thing that fueled his confidence. I really do believe that if you woke David up at three o'clock in the morning and said, David, what is one thing that you want? He would say, I want to dwell with God. Not only was it important, it's where he wanted to be constantly. Notice that it is all the days of his life. Literally? What, what is David after here? Well, uh, there were people who actually lived most, most of their lives in the temple. They were called Levites and temple servants. I mean, they, they woke up, they worked there, they, some of them slept there. They, they were there most of the day. So as David saying, I would like to exchange my crown for a priest's ephod. Well, I don't think so. I think David would understand, like, God's call on his life was to be king, and that that would be an abdication. So I don't think that's what he's saying here. But what he is saying is that he wants to experience God's presence the way that these temple servants do. Uh, he wanted to experience something called the special presence of God. Now, you may say, I, I need to know what you're talking about. What do you mean special presence of God? I mean, I thought God was present everywhere and nothing can contain him. And, and that is the case. But at certain times, God of his own accord, his own will, chose to localize himself. In other words, to, words, to put his presence on earth in a special way to limit himself in that way. And this localization is God's house. This is one of the richest concepts of the Bible. Even in the Psalms, there's a couple of different names for it. In verse 4, it's called God's house. In verse 4, it's also called the temple. In verses 5 and 6, it's called the tent. All of these are places that God localized himself in a special way. But the variety of descriptions and places 
that God's house takes, the forms, tells us something amazing about God. His house would change according to the condition of his people. He is determined to always make his presence available to them. In Numbers chapter 2, Israel, the nation, was in the wilderness, and God gave them very, very specific instructions. He told them how they should camp. And so whenever they would call into camp, up goes the tent of meeting, which David is talking about, the, the house, the tabernacle, and around them would go the different tribes, and then they would peel out in that exact same order. And so God's tent is always in the middle, and this tells us something. God wants to be in the midst of his people. So when they go camping, he goes camping. When they take up presence in the land, he puts, he puts the temple in Jerusalem right in the middle so that they could come to it. Um, God is wanting to be with his people. So just to recap here, David's A number one desire to be in God's house He wants to be there all the time, but what he is really after is God's special presence. And God makes a way for his people to have his presence always. So David's in the tent, or at least he's there in spirit, and what does he focus on when he's there? Why why does he want to be in God's house so much? What, What does he do there? Well, the later part of verse four tells us he is focusing on God's person. In other words, he's there to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, and he's there to inquire after God. So, so what does he want to do in this place? He focuses on God's person. Look at verse 4. One thing I've asked of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. That's focusing on the person of God. Now, now nobody can literally see the beauty of God, even in a special place like the tabernacle. But the place was very, very rich in ritual and symbol that reveal the person that David wants to focus on. You know, perhaps David saw the beauty of God in, in the furniture and the rituals itself. One of the things that he would have seen there was the golden lampstand. And it had its, its seven different arms and it was fueled with olive oil. And, and this pictured the tree of life. So in Genesis, the tree of life was God's presence with Adam and Eve, and, and they needed his life to always be there. So where God is, is life, and that is what this pictures. The table of the presence, this is where they would take 12 loaves of bread, one for each of the tribes, and lay them out, and David probably witnessed that ritual. And, and what this reminded us of is, number one, that God had an obligation to provide for them. But when he watched this, the people would also remember that they were beholden to God for their provision. The altar of incense always had sweet-smelling things burning. And and the idea was that you're smelling it, and God in his throne room is smelling it. And it was a picture of the prayers of his people. And so as you went to the temple and you prayed, it would remind you that your prayers were always before God. And of course, there's the bronze basin for ceremonial cleaning, and it reminded him that God was a holy God and that he was not. David had even seen at one point the Ark of the Covenant, which was hidden behind the, 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 the Holy of Holies. And in that Ark of the Covenant were, were 
reminders of God's protection and covenant. There was, was the staff that had, had budded, and there was a bit of the manna that they had actually eaten that was preserved there. And there's the, t- the tablets of stone where God gave his law. And, and so David would go there, and he would see these, these pictures of the person that God was. This is how he was gazing upon the beauty of God. You know, don't you, don't you love the way that, that a very young child looks at things? So you'll be on a walk, and all of a sudden you'll look over there, and we're talking very young children, you know, and they're, they're squatting down looking at something. And you go and you see what it is, and it's a bug or a mushroom or a leaf or a flower, and you walked right by it. Gazing is stopping to consider something that someone else may just walk by. Giving yourself time to ponder a phrase. Giving yourself time to take the elements and think about what it means. To really enter into it. To take notes and to review them. You know, as you read scripture, stop and ask yourself the question, what what? What does this tell me about God? What does this tell me about myself? What, why did God use that picture? These are ways that we stop and we gaze. So David would go there and he would view the glory or the, the beauty of God. He also went to God's house to focus on God's will. It says that he would go to inquire in his temple. You know, if gazing on the beauty of the Lord focuses on the person of God, this is focusing on God's will. You know, for a king that needed wisdom and guidance, this would be a really wonderful place to be because the tabernacle or the tent would, would house copies of the law. It would have experts in the law that he could ask his questions to. It's a place where it would go and it would put him in the mindset where he would add his prayers to the incense that is going up. Uh, this would be wonderfully clarifying for a king. You know, he was at a place where any decision that reached him would be a difficult one, and sometimes the king needed that. There was another psalmist that wrote about how things become clearer in the house of God. Uh, in, in Psalm 73, this is not David, but the psalmist was recording how he was bitter in spirit, and, and, and he didn't understand the way that God was dealing with things. And then he writes this, "'Until I went into the sanctuary of God.'" Then I discerned their end. You know, it is amazing what happens when you take time to still yourself before God. Often, a peace that passes understanding will come upon you, or something that you have been wrestling with forever will all of a sudden become plain before you. Or an item of God's will that you have just been resisting, you'll say, okay, God, I, I, I submit to your will. You know, so we're talking about the house. We look at God's person and we inquire after his will. You know, and you say like, yeah, I I want this confidence. And and experiencing God's presence in a really special way sounds nice. Uh, Do you have to do that at 316 Red Mill Road? Well, you know, I feel like as in most things, we get this, this false you know, dichotomy. So on one side would be somebody who says, you know what, I find my happy place. That's where God's presence is. You know, like my, I find God's presence at the beach or I find God's presence in the mountain. I don't need to come to a place and be with a bunch of people and and so forth. And, And that would be on one side. 
And on the other side, of course, would be somebody who just like slavishly says, I can't, you know, be with God or be in his presence unless I'm at this particular place with this group of people. And, and, and obviously both of those are wrong. There's a healthy picture that's modeled by David and Christian teaching on the church. Uh, really, it's both. You know, make no mistake, David was at the tabernacle every chance he could get. I mean, that's where his heart was. But really, his heart was kind of like a, you remember that instrument, the protractor with the sharp end and the pencil? His heart was kind of like planted in the tabernacle of God where the special presence was. And no matter where he went, no matter how far he ranged, he was connected and his heart was there. Um, Even if he couldn't be in the temple, he carried God's special presence with him. But this is even more pronounced for me and you as believers. You know, we've got an advantage over him. The truth is that Jesus pretty much ignored the temple of his day because the glory had departed. His, his disciples were, were marveling at the stones, and, and, he, and he said, uh, don't, don't really worry about that. Instead, he identified his own body, Jesus, as the temple. I think this is worth looking at. And, and so the Jews, now this would be the antagonistic leaders, okay? The Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus had just walked into the temple and caused a great stir. He had just kicked out the money changers and flipped over their tables and, and caused a great mess. And they said, what sign? How, how, do you, how do you have the authority to do this? He answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. Will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. And so here we have something astounding. God's special presence is now in a person of Jesus Christ. And then Jesus, knowing that God's special presence was with him, Obviously, his disciples would be really, really left, you know, in the lurch if he left. And so what did he do? He said, oh, don't worry about that. But when the helper comes, who I'll send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. The teaching of Scripture is that God's special presence was in Jesus, not the temple of the day. But what about when he departed? He would send another comforter, the Holy Spirit, and he left us a constant divine presence. Now, so much so that later on when, as, as Scripture continued to unfold, the people of God are called the temple, and Jesus Christ is the cornerstone, and even that our bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit. You know, and, and so here we have the fact that God's special presence is in us, the indwelling spirit and that we are living stones, and that as we gather together, God is with us in a very, very special way. So he is with you as an individual. He is with us corporately. But yes, of course, we'd want to be here where many living stones are. You know, we begin to gain access to this really astounding spiritual reality when when we, like children, stop and we gaze at it. You know, there are many ways to gaze. Uh, The hearing of the word at a gathering like this, your personal reading of scripture, uh, even through the ministry of other spirit-led believers. You know, if you are feeling depleted, you're feeling lost, 
Go find somebody who has a spirit in them and interact with them. This is, this is the way that we begin to cultivate God's presence in our lives. You know, those who cultivate that awareness are going to find that they'll become more aware of God's presence through the Spirit as he witnesses to us Christ. And as they learn to relax in that presence of God and, and be used to saying, like, I, God's presence with, is with me, amazing things begin to happen. We begin to, to stop striving so much and working for his favor. We become very childlike. We move beyond kind of an external obedience, and, and we're filled with his grace. When we empty ourselves of ourselves like Christ, we're able to receive what John calls the fullness of God, grace upon grace. What's happening is we are becoming learners of Christ. We are following him. David's confidence was that God was his light and salvation, and one of the places where he got that confidence was this sense of God's presence, God's house, the place where his presence is. And so the application for you and I today is we've got to good at cultivating God's presence in our life. Now, he has given us all the tools for that. We have to become childlike, and we have to stop and gaze and give him time to do that. And as we do that, we will become more and more aware of his presence and what will happen to our confidence. It will begin to grow. And so God's house fueled his confidence. What else? God's favor. We're in verses 8 through 10. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger, O you who have been my help. Cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Some of you may recall our time in in Psalm 13, where the psalmist uh, spoke about God's face a lot. And we, we talked about this. The face is the organ of favor. Okay, so when a face is turned towards you, and think about that beautiful blessing, right? Number six, um, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. So when God's face is shining on you, you have his favor. You have peace. You have prosperity. But when it's away from us, we are dismayed. That is what David longs for. In verse eight, we get a really rare glimpse of something we don't often see. It's the interior devotional life of an Old Testament saint. There's no chapter or verse that we could find in which God says to David, seek my face. No, this is an interior conversation. God was speaking to David's heart. Other translations make more clear this internal conversation. One of them says this, my heart has heard you say, come and talk with me. And my heart responds, Lord, I'm coming. There's something just really simple and childlike about those words. Maybe the repetition of it when he responds. God says, seek my face, my, your face, Lord, I will seek. This is, is what we could call a lesson in being receptive. Uh, to respond to Jesus. Uh, it's an antenna, a spiritual antenna that's tuned to his voice. It's the kind of receptivity that if you haven't been with God for a while, you've not had time to be quiet before him, that would make you say, 
man, I miss Jesus. I just, I just long for that. That's that internal conversation. That, that's God speaking to your heart. You know, this, this type of response can be cultivated. You know, the more we respond to this voice, the quicker we are to do it. And there's really no need to wait for a mystical experience. We can look at David's uh, call right here and say, see that as a call for you to respond to God. You know, we need to learn uh, to have this, this inner conversation. And so we respond. How do we respond? Well, there are many, many different ways. Like God has many ways of grace. When, when he says, seek my face, we do so through his word. We do so through prayers. We do so through our spiritual imagination. We do so as we gather with other believers. We do so as we, as we take communion and watch baptisms. Um, all of these are ways that we seek his face. What follows is three, this, this simple response is three appeals, and all of them are negative. He says, I will seek your face. And then he says, don't hide your face. Don't turn away and don't cast me off. Is David, is David doubting here? You know, I don't think so. I think there's something of, of the passionate lover, you know, in this. Uh, you know, if you have somebody that you love, you say, you say, don't ever leave me. I would die without you. And, and that's what you feel. That is what David is feeling here. Love is passionate. And that's not at all what he expects. He expects God to act as he has in the past. Uh, look at verse 9, where he says how he addresses God. He calls him, O oh, you who have been my help. He's saying, you have a history of answering me. He says, O oh, God of my salvation, you have a history of saving me. And he, he notes with assurance, like even if his closely earthly t- closest earthly ties are broken, in verse 10, he says, even if my father, father and mother forsake me, the Lord will take me in. Now, some translations make it sound like this is kind of like David's tragic backstory. Um, I don't think that's the case. It's just saying, think of even if, like the relationship that would break your heart if it, if it fell apart. In that situation, God will take you up. So God says, seek my face. And we say, okay. But maybe we say, but How? You know, once again, those of us who are on the other side of the cross have an advantage here. The Apostle Paul wrote this, and just listen to this verse. God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. All right, how do you get the knowledge of God? How do you get the glory of God? In other words, his, his perfect attributes shining towards you in favor. How? And finish the rest of that verse. To get the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. An amazing place to start if you want to cultivate God's, your sense of God's favor would be to start with Jesus Christ. You know, if you doubt God's favor can be known, just look at Jesus. You can look at just his, his life, his, his taking on flesh, his incarnation, it shows that, that God was not willing to be separate, that he wanted to come down and enter into our mess. He was not going to leave us in darkness. He was going to come and be the light. In his miracles of healing, God shows us that he is making all things well, and he is going to do so. In his teaching, we see that he didn't leave us without a witness. He didn't leave us without a prophetic word. He spoke to us. 
As he cast out devils, he assured us that there is no power that can separate us from his love. As he dwelt among the working class and the poor, he showed us that there was nobody that he would cast out. As he washed his disciples' feet, he showed us that God is willing to serve his creation. As he hung on the cross, as he took the abuse of his captors and bore their taunts, we saw the long-suffering of God. In his death, we saw his intention to make an end of our punishment. In his resurrection, we see God's intention not to leave his holy ones in the grave. In his ascension, we are sure that we too will be with him someday. In his seating at the right hand of the Father, always making intercession, we see that he is always there speaking on our behalf. You know, like if you doubt the Father's favor, look at Jesus. Because Romans 8 says this, there's now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Jesus. You know, David was confident that God was his light and salvation because he believed in his presence, God's house, and his favor, God's face. And be assured that, that you can as well. You know, I, I believe that for a song of confidence to be any good at all, that, that it has to be good for all. It was good for the coronation of a king of Israel and everything that he would face, whether it was war or betrayal or or what have you, or abandonment. But, you know, it was also good for the stable boy that was watching this coronation. Uh, If it's good for a king, so sometimes we tend to say like, well, this is good for a king, so it's no good for me. No, no, actually, we got that all wrong. It's saying like, if it's good for the king, then it is certainly good for me and you. You know, it is good for heroic martyrs. It's good for exhausted mothers. In 2015, some of you may remember this, um, there was an execution video that was put out by a radical group um, in which 21 Coptic Christians were marched out in orange jumpsuits right before they were executed on this video. And they were called the Coptic 21. And uh, in that video, right before they were executed, these, these men sang... Yarabi Yasu, which means my Lord Jesus. You know, I don't know where every one of those men was um, in their relationship to God, but that kind of thing right there shows me that I think they felt God's special presence, that they felt his smile at that moment. There is something called a martyr's grace. But I 100% believe that it it is good for martyrs, but it's also good for the tired person that's rubbing a small back at 3 a.m. in the morning, um, putting another humidifier out, worried about croup. Yeah, God is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? God's presence and favor is for you and it's for me. It's for someone here who uh, you're lonely. And perhaps you're a bit angry at the loss that you've sustained. It's for those who are broken in body. And maybe they're listening um, from home because they can't get out right now. It's for those who are anguished in their minds. It's for those who are unable to provide right now like they want to. It's for those who are navigating difficult times in in their work or their ministry. It's for those who are facing an unwanted move. It is it's for those who are fearful in waiting for God. 
you know, you can just look at the litany of things that we can fear, but we can go back to verse 3. It says, in the face of it all, yet I will be confident. Would you pray with me? Well, Father, we thank you for your presence. We thank you for um, the Spirit. We thank you for this body of believers in which you are here. Father, we thank you for uh, your favor, especially the favor that has been shown to us in the face of Jesus. Father, I pray that, that this week we would grow in our confidence, that we would begin to take the time to be childlike and to gaze at you and become curious and to be quiet before you and to let you speak and to put our questions before you so that our confidence would grow. So I pray that for this body. I pray this for Ogletown Baptist Church and and those who consider this home, that you would expand their confidence this week. This psalm would become precious to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.